Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. We left our house at 11.30 in the morning, and by 2 o'clock, we were parents, you know, holding holding a less than five-pound baby girl, and we were in love with her in a way that we could never have anticipated. And it was a, a radically transformative, beautiful, terrible, shattering experience. I held her first, and I had an immediate, instinctual, non-cognitive, like, deep in my gut, like a moment, I immediately felt a sense of radical defense, like posture, responsibility in that moment. I just was like, I will defend her. I will make sure that she is okay. Sarah and Eric became foster parents in the hope of one day adopting a child. When baby Coco came into their lives, it looked like she could be theirs for good. We were told this was a very poor prognosis for that family, that it was very unlikely that she would be reunified and that this was likely to move toward adoption, which is one of the key reasons why we said yes, because we were in it for that. But that wasn't the case. Sarah documents exactly what happened so beautifully in her new book, Stranger Care. That title comes from what the foster system calls it when a non-relative fosters a child. Stranger Care. It's cold and technical, but it also completely sums up how Sarah and Eric were treated by a system that often feels incredibly inhumane to everyone involved. And it became much messier and more challenging and more difficult. You know, Eric talked about seeing Coco and wanting to do everything in his power to protect her. And the more that time went on, the more helpless we became in that. I'm Joe Piazza. And this is Committed.
Sarah and Eric first met in divinity school. It was the first day, and Sarah and a friend of hers were working at the orientation table. Eric walks up. They orient him. And then when he left, I said, I think that guy's cute. And my friend Katie said, I bet he's gay. (laughs) And because he had such nice glasses, I think, and he was kind. And then we became fast friends in school and eventually became more than friends. You want to talk about that? Yeah, we've made out a couple times. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, same. Yeah. So I was a middle school teacher in Southern California and then decided to take a couple years away from that and go and do some more graduate work. And so I applied and got in. And then the first person I met in Cambridge was Sarah at the orientation table. And then we started to study together and then hang out in the same sort of group. And we just spent a lot of time with each other over a lot of complicated, silly, philosophical and theological texts and started to make jokes about all of that and found each other's sense of humor endearing. And that was 1999. Yeah, we met in the September, September of 1999. Yeah, yeah. They had both ended up at the Divinity School for pretty different reasons. I had been an elementary school teacher in Compton, California. And while I was doing that, I kind of was confronted with my own role in systemic racism and the fact that I had benefited from the same system that was oppressing my students. I had a classroom of 36 amazing students and our classroom had no books. The windows didn't open. We had mice and maggots crawling through the floors. And, you know, Compton is very close to Beverly Hills. So I was being confronted with structural poverty and racism. And during that time period, I started going to church. And I found this amazing church in Pasadena called All Saints. It was an Episcopal church, and they were, like, fighting racism, super pro-gun control, like, feminist. And I thought, oh, if this is church, then I want to be part of it. And I thought that Christianity could be a way to help fight against racism. So I went to graduate school to try to become an Episcopal priest and to use religion as an empowering tool for social justice. But once I got there, I fell out of love with Christianity and fell um, into love with philosophy and theology and visual art. Yeah, I was, as a middle school teacher and and local activist and curriculum developer, I was taught history. I was providing my students with a lot of rich meaning-making structures and ways to think about how they fit into the world and the narrative that, you know, drive their experiences on a daily basis. And I found myself starved for that kind of meaning myself, was also confronting my own complicity in structural oppression and public school teaching and uh, a host of other issues that were problematic for me at that time. And then I that I parlayed that into getting my doctorate at the Graduate School of Education at Harvard and and then, you know, getting my MR degree with meeting Sarah there was also That's crucial. Gross. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah. yeah. Your, your MR. Yeah. Yeah, my MR. When Eric and Sarah first met, Eric was just coming out of a real train wreck of a relationship. And he made it very clear from the start that he was not interested in anything exclusive that he would definitely be seeing other people. But Sarah didn't exactly hear that. And I heard, I love you and I'm only dating you. (laughs) So basically, like, it did not, I saw his mouth moving and heard the words that were coming out of his mouth, but I, I really translated them for myself. So we have what I call year zero, where Eric was doing exactly what he said he was doing, and I was pretending he was doing something different than that. So we had to have a reset after that. I actually, I went away for the summer to Idaho, where we where we now live. And when I came back, we had dinner, and he said to me, I want to be with you and only you. And I had, walking over to dinner, I said, you know, like, don't fall for it. You're not going to, you're not going to go back to this guy. The only way you would ever get back together with him is if he said, I want to be with you and only you. And he literally said exactly those words. For the record, your response to that, your immediate verbatim response to that is, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> so, you know, very romantic. It was yeah, very romantic. romantic. And then we, we became pretty serious from that moment forward. They moved in together and eventually got married. And then they started talking about whether or not they wanted kids. I've always been pretty clear, at least once I got deep into my 20s and stuff, that I, that I never wanted biological kids. Mostly because of my feelings about humanity and overpopulation and, you know, what an American child's resources 
the resources required to raise an American child compared to what it might be in Sri Lanka or Botswana or Costa Rica or whatever. And just thinking about my impact in, in the world and thinking about how I wanted to spend my time. And then the more, the deeper I got into my thirties, the more I realized there were just things I wanted to do that didn't connect to having a child. And so it became less and less important. And I've found more and more sources of information that made me feel like it's not that I just didn't, I wasn't interested, it's that I actively didn't want to be a parent. And then unfortunately I, you know, married and was committed to somebody who was having the opposite. I didn't really know Eric didn't want to have a biological kid. When we, when we gotten married, we agreed that we'd have one child and then we kind of got busy doing other things. And I had absorbed, I think a lot of the cultural narrative around this idea that having a kid will ruin your life. I thought that it would really impact my writing or hurt our marriage or that all my friends who had children were always complaining about there not being enough time to do the things they wanted to do or to be by themselves or to make art. And so I was really afraid about what it would mean to become a mother. But at the same time, I had this really deep longing to mother. It was something that was deep inside of me and wasn't going away. And by the time I admitted that to Eric, by the time I said out loud, that I wanted to have a baby, I realized that I was married to an environmentalist who didn't want to bring another human being into the world. And I think this issue about whether or not to become parents is an issue in a marriage that you can't really compromise. You can't have half a you can't have half a kid <laughs> or have a kid for half the time. Well, I mean, maybe there are creative ways to do that, but we couldn't figure out how to do that. What it revealed for me is all the different ways in our marriage I hadn't been saying what I wanted. And I think that's a familiar thing to, I think, a lot of women. I, I had not been saying out loud what my desires were in a lot of ways. And Eric had no idea that I was deferring in that way or not saying what I wanted. He wanted to be married to the strong feminist that he thought I was. But I wasn't being honest with him and I wasn't being honest with myself about my big and beautiful vision for my life, which is that I wanted to be a mother. So at this point, even beyond the question of whether they would be parents, Eric and Sarah had to remake their marriage into a more equal partnership where Sarah was being honest about the things that she wanted and needed. We had to remake our marriage and I had to remake my sense of myself and I had to remake my trust of Eric that I can actually say out loud what I want. And it doesn't mean I'm always going to get it. And he can say out loud what he wants and that doesn't mean he's always going to get it. But that part of what means to be in a relationship is to tell the truth. And I think I've been trained to think that somehow not speaking my desires was generous, but it's not. It's actually like a recipe for resentment and resentment destroys marriages and relationships of all kinds. If we can't be, if we can't tell our own truth, then how can we be a proper partner to somebody else? Eric has always been honest about the things he wants and needs. Integrity is really important to him. And I had had this little fantasy that I needed to keep my desires to myself or it would shake the boat in a way that I wasn't comfortable with. So this child issue kind of forced a remaking of our dynamic that I'm really grateful for now, but was extremely different. I mean, extremely difficult because the stakes were so high. So eventually we agreed that we would become parents. I, I think I we went to therapy together. <laughs> and at the end of our first session, the therapist said, Eric, you don't have to come back. Sarah, I'll see you next week. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> did I win? <laughs> like, what is it? Did I lose? What does it mean? <laughs> and while Sarah was seeing the therapist, the question, do I want to have a baby, changed into, do I want to be a parent? And that felt way more liberating and loose for me. And so then Eric and I came to this position that we could both agree about, which is that we would become foster parents with the hope of adopting a child. And I think Eric does that because he cares about the earth and he wants to humans to do better in response to the earth. He wants humans to tend the earth. And I agreed to adoption because I want humans to tend one another. I want us to take care of each other. And you know, in the foster care system, there's 500,000 children in the foster care system on any given day. And we thought, well, we can be a home for one of those children that needs a home. It was a compromise and a beautiful one. Now Eric and Sarah had to begin the long and oftentimes arduous process of becoming foster parents. More on that after a quick break. 
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am, like I am, where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what. God, if you show me, God, if you tell me, God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Once we'd moved to Portland, we had decided that we would become foster parents at that point, but we kept dragging our feet. Because Eric was just, he was fine not having a child and not being a parent. In the beginning, it fell to me to kind of move that train forward. And because it wasn't yet exactly what I wanted, it was sometimes difficult to do. 
And in the same way that I heard when Eric and I started dating and he was saying, I'm seeing other people and I heard, I love you and only you, I kind of did the same thing with the foster parent, with becoming a foster parent. Like the foster care system is very clear that most children in the foster care system are reunified with their biological parents and that the goal of the foster care system is reunification. But I just kept hearing, well, you know, there's a certain percentage that are available for adoption. So I kind of ignored the warning signs of that system as well. This right here is a really important point. Sarah wanted to foster with the goal of adoption. But the reality of the foster system is that it prioritizes children being reunited with their biological families. And we also got a fair amount of, I think, misinformation from folks, particularly when we took our first placement, about the propensity for that placement to be a forever kid. You know, we were told this was a very poor prognosis for that family, that it was very unlikely that she would be reunified and that this was likely to move toward adoption, which is one of the key reasons why we said yes, because we were in it for that. But, you know, we, I think there's also some really beautiful people in the system. And uh, I remember the first time we went to the training in Idaho in a town called Jerome, just south of us. And it was filled with most of the people who were there were there because they were there to take care of a relative in their family, you know, a cousin or a grand child or a nephew or a work friend, you know, they were what's called relative care providers in the foster care system. And we were one of the only what's called non-relative care providers or stranger care, which is what the title of my book comes from, is what we were called in the foster care system, which is stranger care. You know, a very alienating name for a really intimate task um, to welcome someone else's child into your home and to care for them. And so I think that part, Eric and I were on board with. And some of the training was really helpful to think about how do you care for a child who might be traumatized? How do you love not only that child that comes into your home, but their parent too? The thing I remember most from those trainings that they said, if you can't love the child's biological parent, then the child will think you can't love them either. So I think it's a really profound task to become a foster parent. It's yes, picking up the mess of all of these systems that have failed families for their child to end up in foster care. And it's this radical practice of loving a stranger and letting that love transform you and transform your life and transform your family. Once you go through the training and the certification required to become a foster parent, you start to get a lot of phone calls to take in a child or often multiple siblings who need to be placed in a home right away. A lot of those children have gone through intense trauma. And we were advised to keep a list of questions by the phone of situations we thought that we were comfortable with and situations we thought we weren't well equipped to handle. And then one day at 11 in the morning, we got a phone call and they said there was a a baby girl who was three days old and could we come and get her? And we asked all of our questions and The social worker assured us that this would be a child that would be probably available for adoption. And so we left our house at 1130 in the morning. And by two o'clock, we were parents, you know, holding holding a less than five pound baby girl. And we were in love with her in a way that we could never have anticipated. And it was a, a radically transformative, beautiful, terrible, shattering experience. I held her first and I had an immediate instinctual, non-cognitive, like deep in my gut, like moment that to this day, I don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I, I think instinctual was probably the right word, but I immediately was like, I, I, I was looking at her, but I had like this intense peripheral vision in the room and had this feeling like if anyone comes for her, I will end you. I'm not a violent person. Like I've, I've hit the only people I've hit on this planet are my sister because she took up way too much space in the back seat on car our car rides, and, and that's when I was like four. So like that's it. That's that's the extent of my violence. But I immediately felt a sense of radical defense, like posture, responsibility in that moment. I just was like, I will defend her. I will make sure that she is okay. And I didn't go in. I thought like, oh, I'll hold her and like, oh, she's cute. This is fun. We'll figure this out when we get home kind of a thing. And it was much deeper than that from the initial moment. And I'm still surprised by that reaction. I would have thought like, 
incredible love or I looked into her eyes, or but all I felt was the need to defend. And that to me is weird and it's hyper gendered in an uncomfortable way. But that's, I felt it like just sat in it and it was ready. I felt like I needed a spear in my hand. And then we took her home and started to figure out how to have an infant, you know, particularly one who was that small and, and needed the kind of care that she needed early on. To protect the little girl's anonymity, we are going to call Sarah and Eric's foster child Coco throughout this episode. That's what Sarah calls her in the book. And she calls Coco's birth mother, Evelyn. Well, we were told basically that her birth mother, who I call Evelyn in the book, that she was, they used the word poor prognosis. There was pretty much no way she would be able to get her life back together in order to become a parent again. And when you're trained, they talk a lot about visits with birth parents, with biological parents and how important they are. And when we first took Coco home, they didn't mention visiting with the mother at all. Like it didn't come up. We didn't talk about it. And this is a, a new, an infant. We'd had her for two weeks and we got a call that we were supposed to go to court and that at court we would meet the birth mother. And I think this is one of the most telling stories about the violence and the inhumanity of the foster care system. So here's a, a birth mother. She's given birth. She's had her child forcibly removed from her. She's never met the people who are taking care of this child. She didn't know our names. She hadn't seen us. She hadn't met us for two weeks. And the way that they introduce her to us is we show up outside the courthouse and the mother is there, standing there. She still has all the signs of pregnancy. You know, her breasts are still making milk. She's not allowed to give. She has all the wear and tear that happens when you give birth and she's suffering. That's how we met each other, was going through metal detectors at a courthouse. You know, we have her baby in a, in a little stroller wheeling her baby through metal detectors. We get to the other side and she asked if she could hold her child. And we said, you know, of course. And we handed over this less than five pound baby girl. And I remember just watching her hold Coco and just whisper over and over, I love you, 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 I love you. And, you know, I think at that moment, Eric and I were like, this is not what we thought it was. <laughs> you know, this is, we, here's a mother who wants her child back, who's ready to do anything she can do to get her life in order to get her child back. And we started recognizing that you know, it wasn't going to work the way that we thought it was going to work. And that in order to love Coco, we also had to love Evelyn with all of those complications. And it became much messier and more challenging and more difficult. You know, Eric talked about seeing Coco and wanting to do everything in his power to protect her. And the more that the time went on, the more helpless we became in that we couldn't do anything to protect her. Nothing we did would protect her. I said this before, but Sarah writes so beautifully in her book about a situation that often feels completely impossible. As I was reading it, I just kept thinking about how their backgrounds in divinity school must have taught them to ask the difficult questions. And they did. They were constantly wondering why the system was set up like this. And also the bigger question, why do we live in a country, a world, really, that is not prepared to care for our most vulnerable members? We were a lot familiar with how institutions fail. And we're also familiar with how the folks that work within those institutions in order to protect whatever parts of themselves still feel like they have some integrity or some, you know, worth can sort of chrome plate their hearts and then find ways to get turfy and form alliances that are good for them, but may not be good for those they're ostensibly set to serve and how systems wrap around policies and procedures that forget that we're talking about human beings here. And, you know, the, the dictates of a state like Idaho, which is very much committed to reunification and has a mythical belief in the sanctity of the family, decides that the biological family is the thing that you must protect at all costs, even though the reason the system exists is because biology failed. And they're committed to doing that and committing to reunification, even when they reunify and there's no supports for that family after reunification. As soon as reunification happens, they're adrift in you know, all of those things that were happening with counseling and job training and, and, and addiction counseling and supports and all of those things just disappear as soon as reunification happens. So it's this, 
elevator shaft that they fall in. For me, it's sort of confirmed my essentials. Some people call it cynical. I'm, I'm a deeply disappointed idealist, but it would confirm sort of what I believe about the potential for humanity to actually rise above its own nature, which is not to do this. So I wasn't surprised by it, frankly. I've seen it in public schools. I've seen it in teachers. I've seen it in administrators. I've seen it in in district leadership and in state leadership. It doesn't surprise me that we see this throughout our systems that are designed to serve human beings. So for me, it was confirmatory, but it was also heartbreaking and, and, and enraging. I would actually answer it a little bit more relationally. And it was, you know, we were like madly in love with this little girl that we couldn't protect and trying to navigate this system that at every turn treated us like stranger care, didn't treat us like people who wanted to advocate for this child. And in fact, our advocacy was seen as adversarial. So we, I think we, we faced it as a team really well. Even though the system was focused on reunification, Sarah and Eric were continually assured that Evelyn was a poor prognosis. Those are the words that they used, a poor prognosis to get her daughter back. And so the two of them felt very comfortable settling into life with Coco. She was a really easy baby. We had just a lot of fun with her. We took her on walks every day. We played with her. Eric played hide and seek with her all the time. Not hide and seek, I guess peekaboo. peekaboo um, yeah. Like peekaboo, we, you know, we taught her how to sleep, how to roll over, how to sit up, how to eat, how to drink her milk. She had a milk allergy, so we had to give her a special formula. You know, she was our child for 10 months. During that time, we also had visits with her birth mother. She saw her birth mother for 90 minutes once a week, and then it became 90 minutes twice a week. So we learned how to navigate that relationship. But I remember reading about babies at that age and that they learn, their heart learns to beat by listening to our heartbeats and her breath learned to regulate by listening to our breath. So I think I had this sense that even if she wouldn't ever remember us, that we were helping her brain learn that it's okay to attach to people, that she can feel safe in a home, that this is what regulated breath looks like, this is what regulated heartbeat looks like, this is what a home feels like, this is what love feels like. So we spent a lot of our time looking at her, (laughs) laughing with her, walking around our neighborhood. And I remember being really having this sense that she could leave at any time that I wanted her to feel at home no matter where she was. And so I became like really invested in showing her the natural world, like pointing out the moon and saying, no matter where you are, there will be moonlight, you know, showing her the birds that live in this part of the world, pointing out the lilacs that Eric talked about. I think we were really invested in helping her feel at home on this planet so that no matter where she found herself, she would know that she belongs and that she's never far from home. But it was always intense. You know, she was like a mellow, mellow baby. And I think in part because she had this sense that the rest of her life and the circumstances around her were so intense. I almost feel like it was a response to that. She seemed so wise to me as a little as a little baby. And then, you know, I'd be looking at her thinking, this is the wisest being I've ever looked at. And then she would let out like a chain of like 20 farts, you know, like <laughs> pop, 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 pop. And then I remember, oh yeah, she's a baby. But it, she had this like deep wisdom. I, I still feel that she had like, a, she was an old soul. She had deep wisdom. Sarah's book is filled with instances where you just want to put it down and scream and cry at the way the foster system works. Throughout the 10 months that they had Coco, Evelyn, the birth mother, had tried her best to work through her personal issues. She tried to get clean, to get on her feet, to find housing where Coco could live with her. Eventually, she was given more and longer visits with Coco. And that should be a good thing. But the way the foster system communicated all of these steps to Sarah and Eric was completely inhumane to the people that were taking care of this little girl. You know, I got a text. That's how we found out she was going to go back to her birth mother. We've been told all the way through, this is not a reunification situation. The birth mother had three other kids, all that had been taken from her. And so this was the fourth. And we'd been told, you know, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. And then I still remember the day I got a text. Eric was out of town. I got a text on a Wednesday from our social worker saying that on Friday, overnight visits with her mother would begin. 
And I think I texted back like a text. Are you kidding? Like, are you kidding me? You're going to tell me this by text? And then I said, to, I called her on the phone and I said, I, I don't understand how you're giving me, you know, like two day, less than two days warning. I said, you know, my mom is actually on a plane to come visit Coco and Eric's out of town. And the social worker said, what does that have to do with anything? And I thought, okay, never mind. This is over. Oh, oh yeah. Over. And I think the week before we'd gotten a thank you note from in the from her in the mail from our social worker. And it had on the on the front of it a strawberry and it said, Thank you very much. And it was like this thank you letter from her. And Eric like read it and said, This isn't good. It, it, this means it's over. This means it's over. And I was like, No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And then like a few days later we got that text and then Reunification began. Yeah, and this I want to underscore this for people who listen who may be connected to the you know foster care and maybe social workers or know people who are. So often you hear folks who respond to this story or who put in the comments on you know Amazon on Sarah's book or whatever that like, well, hey, you went into the foster care system that's designed for reunification. You know what the f did you expect? You see, you're super entitled to to this child, and you never should have thought that. I just want to underscore the fact that we were told <laughs> from the beginning this was a poor prognosis. This was her fourth child that was taken into care, that she doesn't have support structures around her that would make it possible for her to choose parenting or to be able to parent, that this is likely not going to work this way. All the signs are this is the third state that she'd been in at that point where she had been had her kids taken into care. She hot-footed across multiple states in order to avoid detection. They were like, I, I'm, I'm not even getting into all the details because I can't and I shouldn't. But it isn't with that we're like, let's go into the foster care system and then we'll think that this baby is ours. Like, we're not stupid. <laughs> we got into it. We realized when they told us that this, and then we started to do what you're supposed to. And this surprised me. Oh, look, you can get really attached to an infant that can't even see you. You know, they can't even, they're basically learning how to see, they're learning how to hear, they're learning how to use their arms and all those things. But the attachment is intense and it's early and it's throughout that time. It's way stronger than I expected, particularly when you think that you are going to be the forever parent for that child. And then what surprised me too toward the end was how callous and careless they were with thinking about how to transition. When they realized that they were going to, they're like, this is the date. And we're like, what are you setting up to help us with that moment where we're going to give her back? Is there a ritual? Is there a celebration? Do you do this? They're like, no, just find a common space and hand her off and then you're good. And I mean, there was basically no sense of the gravity of this huge moment for both the child, for us too. And I know we're tools in the system. We're not paid. We're just people that do the foster thing. We're foster parents. Everyone else has control over the destiny of that. We sort of figured that out. But that they paid no attention to the momentousness of that moment and what the impact it would be for everyone just, again, underscored for me that they don't understand what's really happening for kids and for families, however you construct those families, when they're being reunified, when they're being taken away. It's all just these policies and procedures and boxes to check off on forms and folks who've seen so much trauma that they no longer do it with humanizing practices. They do it in a way that feels dehumanizing. And so you get dehumanized in it. It was pretty horrific. You know, Sarah and I both with the divinity background, we made that moment what it is. We created a moment. We set up a room. We did really beautiful things with her. We set her up with all this stuff. And we had this really meaningful thing that we did that day. And then we drove away and and screamed and cried and raged and, and became different people. We had to meet Evelyn to give her her daughter in a public space because our social worker told us that it still wasn't safe for her to know where we lived. So it wasn't safe for the mother to know where we lived, but she was determined safe enough to be given her child back. I, I remember asking our social worker about that, like, our social worker had a lot of kids, some of them biological, some of them adopted. And I asked her, would you give would you give Evelyn any of your kids? And she said, I wouldn't trust Evelyn with my dog for an hour. And I said, and you're going to give her this baby that can't speak, that can't advocate for herself, that isn't in school, that's just going to disappear. And she said, that's, yeah, that's not what the criteria is. The criteria is right above no harm. It's called some, some kind of parenting ability. It's a step above do no harm. I really just want to pause here 
The social worker had told Sarah that she wouldn't trust the birth mother with her dog for an hour. And yet, she's the one who worked to reunite Coco with this birth mother. So we had to meet her in a public place because she wasn't, it wasn't safe to tell her where we lived. And we had to hand her an infant. And no social workers came to help us with that. No social worker ever called us again to ask, what does Coco need? What is her sleep? What are her sleep habits? What is she eating? How are you? How, how are your hearts? Nothing. We were never contacted again about the situation. And in fact, we were blocked from attending the final court date. And they, they just never, they didn't want to hear from us. They didn't want us to do anything. It was just, it was crazy. But there's a part of the story that is even crazier. And Sarah writes about this in Stranger Care. Once a child is reunited with their birth family, that birth family is no longer given the support that they were given while the child was in care with another family. Their safety net just disappears. And the, the minute that they gave the child back, they took away all of the supports that Evelyn had had around her. So she'd had mental health counseling, access to drug abuse counseling, subsidized housing, subsidized housing, help with employment, social worker, you know, just support after support after support after support, child care, which is what Eric and I were, free child care. And then once Coco was back with her, all of those supports disappeared. So, you know, when people ask me, is there something we could change about foster care? The first thing I say is end poverty. But the second is keep those supports intact. That's the moment that families need them most is when they've been brought back together. And it just, it blows my mind that everything that was helping Evelyn be okay was taken away the moment that Coco was returned to her. Sarah and Eric never gave up hope. They wanted to root for Evelyn because rooting for Coco, loving Coco, meant wanting Evelyn to do well. They kept telling the social workers, we're here if you need us. If Evelyn has to give her up, if she needs more time, we can take Coco. We were the ones who raised her from a newborn. And please, please keep us updated about anything that we can do. But then the worst that Sarah could have possibly imagined actually happened. We'll be right back. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. 
She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. After Sarah and Eric gave Coco back to her birth mother, Evelyn, they tried to stay in touch with Evelyn as best they could. And for a while, they heard good things. And then... She eventually disappeared, and Coco disappeared, and really bad things happened. And exactly what we said was going to happen happened. And her birth father got out of prison, and is a reason that a lot of those things happened. Once the birth father was out, he and Evelyn resumed a very rocky relationship. There were domestic disputes, and shots were fired in the home where Coco was living. Sometimes Coco's birth father communicated with Sarah and Eric, and he said he supported the two of them coming back into Coco's life. Other times he threatened them, often quite violently, and told them to stay the hell away from his family. Ultimately, after many, many problems, The foster system decided that Coco was not safe with either of her birth parents. She came back into foster care in another state and was placed with a different foster family with her half-brother. And as soon as she was taken back into care, Eric and I, it still makes me cry to think about, we, we drove to that state to go get her because we assumed that they would give her back to us. I'd been in close contact with people in that other state, but they refused to give her back to us, and they've kept her with the other family. We have been... Side note, that the statutes in that state and the regulations of the, so, of the foster care system actually should have prioritized us as the primary placement, and they didn't. And the reasons for that, if I, you know, we can't disclose because it would be too much information that could reveal people's identities, but for real, just straight-up corruption and not following their own statute, not following their own rules... And the, the levels of ineptitude and corruption that we uncovered through this process were, as you said, mind-boggling. But for me, they were just so we, you know, pursued legal counsel to try to move toward that. But you don't, as a foster parent, you don't have any standing in any court. You just don't. And to then pr- to try to compel that particular state and their foster care system to abide by their own rules and regulations, also no leverage there whatsoever. So Really disheartening, really dangerous, really sad for Coco, and also really hard for us to be driving back and forth to that spot and renting a house and being ready to take her and then meeting with these functionaries of the system that were just looking for their boxes to check off and wanted us to go away because we were sort of noise for them. Actually, that was probably, those months were maybe the most horrific months that we had. But Coco, we now Zoom with her every Thursday morning. So we see her and she's really well taken care of. She's happy. 
funny, giggly, silly, silly little girl. And and her current placement with with her foster parents, you know, they're they're doing a great job with her. She's a happy, healthy little girl. And we we will be in her life. So I think that we had to keep reminding ourselves. You know, what is our goal? Our goal is for her to be safe and to be loved. We we wanted that to be with us. But if it can't be with us, we still want her to be safe and to be loved. And we want to be a window to another world and her champions forever. And so we've committed to that. You know, we've chosen to keep loving her, keep loving her, keep loving her. Even if every time this the Zoom screen goes dark, you know, all we want to do is, is bring her home. But our hope is that we'll get to stay in her life for. A really long time. Coco being reunited with Evelyn was devastating for both Eric and Sarah individually, but it was also incredibly hard on their marriage. We also went to marriage counseling when it became when Coco was reunified with her mother. I called a friend of mine who's whose son had died. And I said, you know, I know it's not the same thing. Coco's not dead, but she's gone. It's a kind of death. I need your help. Like, help, help me. And she said, tend your marriage. So many marriages end when a child is lost, whether that's death or some other way. And so we started going to counseling together, which I think was a good idea because we wanted that grief to bring us closer together instead of driving us apart. And we also grieved really differently. Our grief looked different. Like all I wanted to do was look at pictures of Coco. I stayed in relationship with her birth mother. Like I wanted to write about her. I wanted her to be close to me. I visited her. I helped with childcare for her mother. Eric wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't want to see her again unless we were going to bring her home to be ours. So our grief you know, Eric can talk about what his grief looked like, but our, we grieved differently. And so that was another deepening of our relationship is can we give each other the space we need to for our grief to look different, to grieve differently? There were parts in me that got broken that I didn't know I had. And I didn't want to be that open to the universe. I didn't want to be that open to that kind of loss. That's part of the reason why you know, I think essentially I'm pissed at the universe for having created a planet that's run by human beings. I, I don't think we're a really great species. And I didn't want to have, yeah, I didn't, I didn't want to have a being that was that fragile and that vulnerable that I was responsible for when I know, you know, at the deepest parts of me, how violent and dangerous and indifferent our, our humans are, and then how the planet and universe tend to function with vulnerable things. And so I didn't, I didn't want to be that open. And when she, when I handed her back to her biological mom and we, you know, drove back home to our lives, I'd never had grief like that. So I, I didn't know what to expect about it. And then I found myself, you know, doing things that I didn't feel like I was in control of. We used to take her outside to smell the lilacs in our front yard because she really liked it and she wanted to do it. And so like I clipped the lilacs that she had smelled that day and I still have them. I still have the shriveled avocado, the last avocado we fed her. I still have the last outfit that she wore and I've never washed it and it's sitting in a box. And I can't, I haven't opened that box in over two years. It's, it's in my closet and I can't, I can't open it. Grief shows up in a thousand different ways. I'm lucky that I had support from one, our marriage counselor who also ended up being my individual counselor was an expert in in grief. And she was masterful in, in helping me navigate through that. And then there was a person that I worked with through some of my own professional projects who ended up leaving her role and becoming a death doula. And her expertise is in how to navigate these major end of life events in a way that honors the, the pain and does really productive things to it, but helps people to make those transitions. And she sent this card that's still hanging in my closet about, it has like, 500 different ways of like to do grief. And the thing at the bottom is like that, you know, no matter how you do it, that's the way you're, that's the way grief looks for you. And that's okay. Um, and it gave Sarah and I both permission to have very different versions of what, what the grief would look like. For me, I just wanted to be in the middle of nowhere with no human beings anywhere near me. And for Sarah, she needed connection sometimes, not always. And we managed that. And I think we've come around on the other side of it in many ways. It still hurts like hell though. I think my last question is how are you guys different now? having gone through this, how is your marriage different? 
I think it's different. I think going through that kind of shattering that we went through with Coco and then going through also knowing like both of us knowing together in our deepest knowing that we wanted to be forever parents. But I also like who I am now. I like the way I love now. I like the way choosing to love Coco and choosing to love Evelyn expanded my sense of family. You know, people say, I never knew love like I knew when I, you know, when my child was born. And as a non-parent, when I was a non-parent, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. It felt to me like it was casting people who weren't parents as deficient in some way. But I have felt that expansive, different kind of love, but it's not biological. No, it's it's the, the fact that I think that the universe said to Eric and to me, like, here, tend this. Like here, any stranger can become your family. Like here, you can love people you never thought you would love. And I think that for me is what's transformed, transformed my sense of community, my sense of what it means to be a mother, my sense of what it means to be a partner, my sense of what it means to be a, a, a citizen and to try to make the world better for the most vulnerable among us is that like, any stranger can be your daughter. Any stranger can be your son. And if that's true, then you can love anyone. Refugee, river, mountain, enemy. Love can happen everywhere. But after all that... After everything that Sarah and Eric went through with Coco, after their hearts were broken wide open, the two of them still wanted to be parents. We decided to adopt, actually. We, we decided, I think, with Coco, we realized, okay, we do, we want to be forever parents. We can't, at this point, let another child go like that again. I think we will maybe be foster parents again in the future, but we also wanted to be forever parents, so we worked with a nonprofit adoption agency in Idaho that's incredible and ethical and amazing. And we adopted a little boy in April. We were at the hospital when he was born and it's an open adoption. And his mother, his birth mother is an extraordinary, generous, vibrant human being. And she also has a daughter and we are really close with her and with her daughter and with her mother. And actually the three of those generations were just staying at our house this weekend so they could spend time with our son and so it's just this it's like the antidote or the opposite to what we experienced in the foster care system this is like a an experience of more family more family more family like kinship is a practice we're over the moon in love with our little boy This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. A very special thanks to Sarah and Eric. Committed is produced by Ramsey Yunt. The executive producers are Joe Piazza and Tyler Klang. Theme song by Tristan McNeil. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. Or send us an email at joe at committedpodcast.com. That's J-O at committedpodcast.com. Committed is a production of iHeartRadio and produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. 
this time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.